Are you ready, Christine? I'm ready. Are you ready, Ma? Yes. Listen to the story now. We are going to 1974 San Francisco. It took me a long time to figure out where we were. Me and too. I, we were, and like Adam and I were trying so hard to guess. And then I was wrong in the end. Also, Mac is on one, so apologies. It's going to be drink. A drink. <laughs> there we go. Um, I will say one year later, 1975, Poppy and I had our, well, wait a minute. No, uh-huh. honeymoon? it was 1976. We had our honeymoon. We had to wait because I was teaching. And back then you didn't take off a week for a honeymoon. Okay. Wusses out there now. Exactly. Taking time off. <laughs> we are doing the conversation. <clears throat> um. Sure. Are we doing thoughts now or no? We'll wait. Okay. Let's wait. Let's let's hold it at least until we get to set the table. Okay. Um, okay. Holding thoughts. Surveillance expert Harry Call is hired by a mysterious client's aide, a young Harrison Ford, to trail a young couple and record their cryptic conversations and try to determine if the couple are in danger. Okay, luckily I was able to get that off the blur because I didn't have a clue what was Not going on. one single damn clue. You know, I have no notes and not in a good way. <laughs> I was really, uh, okay, I was hoping Aaron would be able to educate me to why, uh, because maybe you have to be, you know, a little more learned in the art of movie making than I am. But she's going to do the particulars now. The particulars. Let me guess. This was nominated for an Oscar. It was. Of course. The particulars. It was produced. Oh, what? They were at one conversation and called it an Oscar worthy film? (laughs) Damn. <laughs> it was produced. Like the, I'm sorry. The amount of times that Adam and I sat here going like, "What the hell is going on? What is happening?" I didn't have anybody to it. talk to. We get it. You've listened to this damn conversation 14 times. It's 1974. The technology is not going to get any better. <laughs> Give up on it. <clears throat> and then he was under a toilet. And then something happened. Okay, I'm sorry. It was who was it produced by? <laughs> oh man, this is great. Um, she's sweating. We got her sweating, people. No, I'm sweating because it decided California decided to be California, and now it just completely skipped spring, and it's just summer. No. Yeah. And so. Oh. Um, but it, it's gonna cool back down. It's just a, a little little heat wave for the 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 weekend. It's produced, written, and directed by okay, wait. First of all, one of the first films, like before this even became a podcast, I was always hearing about this film, Michelangelo's Michelangelo and Tioni's blow up. And I watched it. And the way that 
what I felt about Blow Up is what you guys felt about this. So I feel that because I watched Blow Up and I was like, oh, oh this, this is, is like Blow up. up. Okay. Oh, this is a version of because Blow Up is in a, I believe it's either French or Italian. So it was in a foreign language. And oh. it was this before this. If this a foreign language, I don't think I would have stuck with it. I would have just had to call it, it quits. It was before this, and it wasn't about audio. It was basically the same kind of premise, but it was a photographer. And he okay. took a picture, okay. and it was in the background. And so it was like that, and then it oh, was okay. all of... The, oh, so blow up, blow up the picture, blow up yeah. the negative. Not kaboom, blow up like oh, kaboom. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was like that. And he wasn't. it wasn't like he was a spy or anything. He was like a, a fashion playboy type. For, mm. Again, from what I gleaned, I was, I was, I did the, huh, so that's blow up over my head. So when I came to this, I went, huh, the conversation. Okay. And I was able to follow it. Because I, I feel like because I had had I'd gone I, through blow up boot camp. Yeah, so. maybe. We did we didn't have blow up boot camp. And I figured in the end they were gonna figure out what the conversation was. It was gonna lead to something and it did. No, Not but soon this enough, this, but this movie is more about the times than about the movie. So we'll, okay. we'll get into that. There's a lot of nerd alerts, there's a lot of in and outs and what have you. So it made me so mad I didn't look anything up, so glad you did so sit back and relax enjoy aaron's voice yes (laughs) sorry sorry people who don't it's produced written and directed by francis ford coppola oh that's why it's his favorite so he's done he did the godfather he did this movie came out in april for april 7th 1974 in December of 1974, a little film called The Godfather Part Two came out. So he he released this was after The Godfather came out. It, this was between The Godfather and The Godfather and- Part Two. He made this film. Okay, and it, it kind of because you know The Godfather is very like like you know it's it's you're following along. It's epic. This is kind of like I was like oh this is Francis Ford Coppola like flexing his film his film muscles this is his okay. ma for this is like an inside joke but this is his johnny got gangrene if you will this is his okay. you you know what i mean like i okay. everybody has to go off and try to make a, a for lack of a better term artsy film so he okay. made he also made so the godfather part two comes out in december then he goes on and he makes apocalypse now the outsiders the cotton club and he has a film scheduled to come out in 2024 called megaopolis it's got a star-studded cast it's edited by walter Murch, who was a film editor director writer sound designer and walter was the first person to receive credit as sound designer for apocalypse now Apocalypse Now came after this film. He also um, edited Julia, Ghost, and The English Patient. It was also edited by Richard Chu, who did My Favorite Year, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Star Wars, and Waiting to Exhale, just to name a few. Yeah. The music is by David Shire, who did All the President's Men, Big, and Zodiac, to name a few. Nerd alert, he was working in TV, doing mostly TV scores, and at the time he was married to an actress named Talia Shire, 
who happens to be Francis Ford Coppola's sister. These two divorced, Talia Shower, Talia and David divorced in 1980, and Talia went on to marry a name by, a man by the name of Jack Schwartzman, who is the father of Jason, Jason Schwartzman, Schwartzman, who's in my favorite all-time Wes Anderson film, Rushmore. David went on to marry actress Dee Dee Cohn, who played Frenchie in Greece. Oh, wow. You need you need a uh, a flow chart. I know. And you should see my apartment, all the red strings everywhere. But that's not tearing up everything because everybody's listening to me. Where is it coming from? The director of photography is Bill Butler, who also did Jaws, Grease, Deliverance. And completed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest when the original director of photography, Haskell Wexler, was fired. Nerd alert, Haskell Wexler was the original director of photography on this film, The Conversation. But he was fired for creative and personal differences with Francis Ford Coppola. And they reshot all of his scenes except for the very complex Union Square scene at mm-hmm. the beginning of this film. Oh. Wexler, he was his own in his own right a famous director of photography, and you can hear his credits if you listen to In the Heat of the Night, because he was the director of photography on In the Heat of the Night. Mm, okay. The cast starring Gene Hackman as Harry Call. Gene Hackman in 1971 won an Oscar for Uh, He played the lead in The French Connection. He also won an Oscar later in the 90s in Unforgiven. He also was in Bonnie and Clyde, Mississippi Burning, The Firm, Crimson Tide, and The Royal Tenenbaums, just to name a few. Nerd alert, Gene Hackman. We almost didn't get Gene Hackman movie star because he almost took the role of Mike Brady in The Brady Bunch. But his agent was like, no, my man, hold out. For film roles. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Wow. Yeah. That would have been a waste of a talent. Yeah, I said it. Yeah. We have John Cazale as Stan. This is this is John Cazale's entire filmography. Mm-hmm. The Godfather. This film. The Godfather Part 2. Dog Day Afternoon. The Deer Hunter. That's it. That's the list. Then he died. Then he died. So, I mean, it's wow. tragic that he died, but geez. Dang, what a way to go out. You're just yeah. string after string after string. Talk about, oh, was it a George Costanza? <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Leave a, go out on the top. Go out on a high. We have Alan Garfield as William P. Bernie Moran. Um, he was the rotund fellow who was who wanted to um get in the business with harry he he was the guy that he he put the bug in his in his um oh the pen pen. yeah oh okay and recorded him he was in putney swope the candidate and the cotton club we have cindy williams as ann we did her last week she was in travels with my aunt Okay. Uh, which I forgot about my joke about oh it's travels with my aunt because they were white and if we did the travels the, with my aunt 
would be Chow's I listened. You, we talked about it as aunt <laughs> when you were doing the black cat. Oh, did we? I just code switched you it did, just without yeah. even like. You had to do it. that your whole life. Yeah, that's. You had an aunt and you had an aunt. Yeah. Um, so she was also in American Graffiti, Meet Wally Sparks, and of course, Laverne and Shirley. We have Frederick Forrest, who was Mark. He was in The Rose, Apocalypse Now, and Falling Down. A young, as you say, Harrison Ford as Martin Stent. He was in Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and The Fugitive. And, you know, he's Harrison Ford. We um, And we have Terry Garr as Amy Fredericks. She I was in. Recognize her. I know I didn't either. Until I was like, wait, Terry Gar was in this. She was in Viva Las Vegas, Young Frankenstein, Tootsie, and she played Phoebe Abbott in Friends. And we have Robert Duvall as the director. That was a lovely surprise at the very toward the end. I know he was in. To Kill a Mockingbird, The Godfather, The Godfather Part 2, Network, Days of Thunder, and The Greatest, which there's the poster. So we're, ha- we're going to have to do The Greatest at some point. I got the poster. And that's The Particulars. Okay, I'm going to set the table. <laughs> can you? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do the best I can. The movie starts with an overhead view of San Francisco. Maybe I can't. The movie starts with an overhead view of San Francisco's Union Square. Moment. Didn't even know San Francisco had a Union Square. Oh, wait for cast. Oh, wait, Ma. No, turn your turn your mic back on. There we go. No editing in this bad boy. <laughs> we see a mime annoying people, then focus on, and then the movie focus, the mime doesn't focus on the snipers and the surveillance mm-hmm. being done on a young couple. Cindy Williams notices one dude following, and Gene Hackman gets in a surveillance van. What could go wrong? <laughs> that's what I could do. That's all I could do. Yeah. <laughs> and get to the surveillance van. I love it. And then it got boring. I love it. Okay. Uh, that's my that so that's we are to people of color and uh, I didn't see any. I saw well, at least two. I was paying attention for the two in Union Square. There are multiple people of color in the background in, in Union Square and stuff, but there are no people of color with uh, roles, oh, no. no speaking parts or anything like that. So we're to cast. Teen, oh, I'm guessing that. No, 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 okay. no notes. Okay, no notes. Okay. So as you said, the first, because because there was nothing there, I was like, well, well what am I going to do with cast? And I mean, I ask and America giveth. So settle in, everyone. This is this is an interesting. We're gonna go into the rabbit hole that I fell into this morning. So I noticed well, remembering that your parents were engaged in 1974. Yes. Okay. You. That that'll be interesting to to know. Just because it, because you went to San Francisco in 1976. Were you okay. in Union Square? Did you go to Union Square? 
Not that I remember, but maybe. <laughs> it was her honeymoon. <laughs> and we did meet G3 there, so. Oh, well. You went to San Francisco on your honeymoon? Yes. That's fun. During the bicentennial. Our 50th, yes. Okay, so this is going to be interesting, because okay. basically cast is about San Francisco. Okay. So the first scene shot in Union Square in San Francisco. So I was like, hmm, Union Union Square, San Francisco. Interesting. Made a note of that. Okay. Union Square is a public plaza in downtown. It also refers to the surrounding shopping, hotel, art, and theater district. Um, in its name, it got its name Union Square because Thomas Star King, who went by Star King, had rallies and that supported the Union Army during the Civil War. It's a California historical landmark. So then I was like, wait, who is this Thomas Starr King? I looked him up. Like K-I-N-G? Yeah. So he went. He goes by Starr King? Yep. He goes by Starr King. Red flag. You say. But Lincoln credited him, Starr King, with preventing California from becoming a separate republic. He called, he referred to Star King as, quote, the orator who saved the nation. Star King was a universalist and Unitarian minister who preached out of Boston. And then he came out west and he was struck by the beauty of Yosemite. And so he was one of the people that helped make sure that Yosemite was set aside as a reserve. Oh, asterisk. I'm sure that the native, popu- the indigenous population might have a different take on Yosemite and all of that. And I didn't go down that rabbit hole in this. Okay. So I do put, I do put an asterisk. I don't, I don't know about that, but, yeah, but thank you for including that because yes. we don't think of that. Um, but, but he was one of the people that it was like, this is, oh my God, this is beautiful. You need to, we need to set it aside. So then it became a state park and then eventually became a national park. And the star King guy, he would, um, where union square was, it was just a dirt mound and he would, he got together with some other people and he would read poems and he would give talks. And his big thing was he, he said, quote, the state, and he's referring to California, must be northernized thoroughly by schools, Atlantic monthlies, lectures, and northeastern preachers. Um, in 1861, on George Washington's birthday, he gave a two-hour speech to over a thousand people at what would later become Union Square about how they should remember Washington by preserving the Union. He said, quote, I pledge California to a northern republic and to a flag that should have no treacherous threads of cotton in its warp. And the audience came down in thunder. So he was really good at talking and getting people riled up and being like, yeah, go. We're about the union. And instead of being like, no, we're going to we're going to ball out and just be California. So I thought that that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um. He also ended sermons with, quote, God bless the president of the United States and all who serve him with a common in and all who serve him with the cause of a common country. Now, I would like to point out that he gave this speech on Washington's birthday and was using Washington to rile people up about, um, you know, keeping the union together. And that he said that the flag should have no treacherous threads of cotton in its warp. 
Well, George Washington was a slave owner. A slave owner. So I did think that that's a little bit um, picking out the parts of the Bible that you wish to quote, you know, of like, we'll take this and we'll take this and we will shh, nothing to see here. Because um, my man George Washington was nicely wrapped around that <laughs> treacherous war, you know. But anyway, so that's how Union Square got its name. Okay. In the center of Union Square, you have what's called the Dewey Monument. And um, it's that, that tower. So at the top of the tower is Nike, the Greek goddess of victory, is at the top. And oh, I thought Nike was the Greek goddess of footwear. <laughs> I was glad you did it. That was a good one. That was a good one. Bada bing. Um, it's named for Admiral George Dewey, and it's referencing, it's actually a monument for all Navy uh, Americans. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but it's named for Admiral George Dewey, specifically his victory in the Battle of Manila Bay during the Spanish-American War. Okay. Now, the Spanish-American War, that was at the turn of the, the, the century, so 1900s thereabouts. And Spain and the United States were at odds. Um, because, you know, Spain was colonizing a lot of islands like Cuba and whatnot. And so Spain sank the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. And also this is around the time, I believe that this is what the term yellow journalism is about because there were newspaper reports and they were really um, heavy handed in the Spanish atrocities and really getting the American public riled up against mm -hmm. Spain and, and what they were doing and stuff to the people of Cuba and that kind of thing. And so then Spain sank the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. And I also think that there may be, and I didn't go down this rabbit hole, but I also think that maybe some people are like, did Spain actually sink the USS Maine? I think there's some controversies maybe about that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the net result was that the U.S. was big mad. And also the big West mad. Coast, yeah, big mad. And the West Coast feared a Spanish invasion because Spain had colonized um, a lot of areas around there, specifically the Philippines. And so the United States was like, all right, enough of that. No. So they went into the Manila and defeated this Spain. And so for the Philippines, thus ended their Spanish col Spanish Colon colonization. Right. But then the U.S. had control. And then the Philippines were like, wait a second. Uh, Y'all got your independence from England. Yeah. Uh, you want our independence. And thus we had the Philippine-American War, which... If you some names call it the Filipino insurrection and stuff, because, you know, the audacity of the Filipinos to want their independence in the United States was From like, good no, us. I know. I mean, Look at us getting in on the colonization. Like we, we spend a lot of time talking, like pointing fingers over it. I see you, Belgium. I see you, England. I see you, Spain. Now the finger gets rightly pointed back at us. I see you, America. So the Filipinos wanted independence. And like I said, the United States said, nah, not having it. So it wasn't until Japan invaded the Philippines during World War II and, you know, a bunch of fighting, fighting. And then eventually the Philippines were granted their independence. Granted. Huh. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Filipinos got independence in 1946. 
And Dewey is also the man that Dewey Beach, Delaware is named for. Oh. oh I was I thought wondering if Dewey had... I wasn't wondering that. There was no way I was going to guess that. But my grandfather's name was Dewey. Oh. I wondered if he was responsible for the Dewey Decimal System. I don't know, because this man Lots had a storied career. Yeah. yeah. So maybe he did. So anyways, getting back to Union Square... From 1939 to 1941, under that square, they constructed the first underground parking garage. So what we're looking at oh. at that point, on so saved on the celluloid from 1974 in the film, that's actually the roof of an underground parking garage. Huh. And then in 1998 through 2002, the square got renovated and they basically created more paved surfaces to make it easier to maintain and so then it reopened so if you go to union square now it's not going to look like union square in this movie so then i'm like all right cool union square is for the union yeah i didn't really didn't really see that many black people so then you know i had to google what about black people in san francisco and i came up with a couple of interesting articles so there's a 2018 article by Kimberly Reyes called The Dream vs. Reality, colon, on being black in San Francisco, a history of aspiration and heartbreak. Okay, and I'm going to stop you right there because I'm going to tell you that in the late 60s, San Francisco was the home of brotherly love, make love not war, the hippies, everybody loves everybody. So I thought San Francisco was this totally liberal place. So go, Aaron. Wrong. Well, it, that's very interesting. Keep up in on that. Because even to this day, when people think of San Francisco, they think of that. The flower children. It's where you uh -huh. go to. Like, I've been to San Francisco. And you, get, you do get swept up in the beauty and the allure of it. Uh -huh. And you see the Golden Gate Bridge and the fog moving in. And the nice temperate weather and stuff. So she points out, Kimberly Reyes, San Francisco thinks itself elite progressive. But it's even pointed out in the 1963 documentary, Take This Hammer, James Baldwin, as he's being driven around San Francisco, says, quote, at least in the South, racism is overt. But here, oh. especially in San Francisco, where everyone is so liberal and so civilized and so literate, they throw it under the rug. And so then the author, this is her quote, quote, of course, I don't believe that all white San Franciscans are problematic so much as the systems of white privilege and neoliberalism, systems that require a caste of people submerged below to keep the next level afloat and feeling accomplished. Systems that unfortunately seem more virulent here in what has become a plutocrat mecca for the inevitable pilgrimage of the privileged. Wow. And that's exactly what's happened. And she goes on to say, Oh, sorry. sorry. Quote, and I wonder if the recent election of London Breed, a black woman as mayor, will only serve to further the optical illusion that San Francisco yeah. is an inclusive city instead of a haven of white privilege with walls much more difficult to breach than any physical manifestation of will and power. I will tell you this. 
When we were in San Francisco in 1976, July of 1976, the bicentennial, that was the first time that someone had actually to our faces called us out for being an interracial couple that I know of. Yeah, I mean, to your face. In, yeah, San yeah. Francisco. And it was a black dude who said to Poppy, you need to get yourself a sister. <laughs> uh, but that's the first time that, that I heard it. He might to have heard your it face. any other time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yes. Behind our back. Oh, my God. Yeah. The whole the whole congregation at our wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Both oh. sides. <laughs> And I don't know that much about San Francisco, but it's the homeless population is. Oh, you're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But you can go ahead and, and talk about it. Uh, you have the facts, not me. I just know it ain't great. I mean, I feel like this sounds similar. This, what you're explaining to me, sounds like Portland 2.0. Or 1.0. I don't know which came first. But. Well, I think it's I think it's interesting, and we'll we'll save put a pin in that, and we'll unpack that because there's a little bit more. So there's an article called "Dear San Francisco, You've Changed, But I Still Love You" by Megan Rose Dickey, and she points out that in the 1970s, San Francisco had a 13% black population, and by 2018, it was 5.5% black. And so in her, That's I believe it in San Francisco. In yeah. City. Yeah. And it's it's even going down, down more. So it points out to the cost, the rising housing cost. It costs 66 percent less to live in Sacramento. And if you got a Google map, you can look at San, Sacramento versus San Francisco. The discriminating discriminatory housing practices there were black people were the highest group to get mortgage rejections. Mm -hmm. The health disparities. Um, oh, I think wow. that black people like led the mortality rates in all of these things. So despite them being such a significantly small percentage of the population. Wow. You have the destruction of primarily black neighborhoods and gentrification. Um, Megan Rose Dickey. Um, she cites that her grandfather practiced dentistry in the Fillmore District and starting in 1947. And the Fillmore District of San Francisco was also known as the Harlem of the West. Mm -hmm. But in the 60s and 70s, the city led redevelopment and a complete overhaul of Fillmore displaced more than 10,000 black people. Oh. So, Jay, that's a, if you listen to <clears throat> God with the Bushes, you will see a theme of this going through all of this. You'll be like, again? And it's like, yes, again. Her grandfather, though, was obviously a very educated man because he practiced dentistry. And he had to fight tooth and nail. But luckily, he retained. And he had to fight, fight, fight. But he was able to retain the building. And that remains in their family to this day. So just because you know, you know that they tried everything to get exactly. that building from that black man. Um, and so that goes into today what you'll read about with San Francisco. And this is taken by a Jenna Green article. Is this major city in a doom loop like New York after 9-11? Spoiler alert, the city that she's referring to is San Francisco. So what's happened is happened in a lot of downtowns um since 2020 in the covid pandemic 
you know, your downtown centers, that's business. People would go down to the offices. So there were a lot of businesses. You had your commercial real estate that obviously catered to them. And then you also had your barber shops, your retail, your um, lunch spots, your coffee shops. And you had all of these like uh, its own little economy for the downtown. But when COVID happened and people were at home, then the companies were like, yo, we don't need to spe- like shell out all this money for corporate office space because actually mm-hmm. we're seeing productivity go higher. We're seeing our employees are happier to be working at home. Um, we This is working for us. So then all of those smaller businesses and not even smaller, but the economy around the office culture that the downtown really catered itself to, that started imploding. So San Francisco specifically, they were a city that they heavily relied on tech-savvy jobs. But it turns out those tech-savvy jobs, since they're tech, they can pretty much be done done by any computer. Anywhere. And then it quotes, San Francisco's recovery is also threatened by the flight of lower-wage workers. The city lost 55% of food service workers from 2019 to 2021 and 34% of service workers. 33% of people in sales and 26% of office administrative workers, to name a few. Many cannot afford to live in the city and many don't want to. So that gets into what's termed as a doom loop because the more people leave, the less Mm -hmm. tax revenue that you have. And with the tax revenue, that is the money that supports infrastructure. Like, I don't know. Like, here's the thing. Things like a fire department, of course, the police who get an outsized chunk of the money. But it's also other things like mental health resources. It's sanitation. It's all of these things that you don't want to think about, especially this time of year when you might be cutting your paycheck or, you know, cutting your tax check or whatever. And you're like, God damn it. And all this. But in a society, that's one of the what what when people when archaeologists look back in a society One of the things that they look for in order for something to be called a society is whether or not people took care of each other. And if people took care of each other, then that was considered a society. So just from an archaeologist's point of view. So things like taxes and stuff, it's annoying. And we want to know where our tax dollars go. But a lot of that is in things that you don't see, but until you need them. So people leave. That takes that money away. Um... And it's very interesting. So now you'll hear things about the doom loop. And they they refer back to that as to what happened in lower Manhattan after 9-11. People weren't safe. People didn't feel safe living there. It was really gutted out, obviously, by the tragedy that happened. And so the city had to figure out how to get people back to that area. And what they found out, and you can tell me, Teeny, about this, like lower Manhattan, the Tribeca area, that's... So is it like how's that neighborhood doing? Is it do people like live there and well I don't spend much time there myself, but yeah, people live there. I think once again though, it's like now more people have gone. Like it's it got back there, but now after COVID, there's no reason to live and live there because that's where all the offices are. Ah. Right. Right. And so that's part of their thing that they're. So it's kind part- of basically like San Francisco. Now. I mean, no, it's mm-hmm. not anywhere it's near not- like that. But it's like the whole right. like people aren't living there. 
it's always it's a little bit better because there's like some schools around there and stuff. See, but. it's the reason that it's not in the doom loop of like say San Francisco is because they were like, okay, you we need to have affordable housing so that people can live there, and then we need to have it be like a community. So you need to have things like grocery stores, schools, things so that people have everything that they need within their little community, and then they feel like, oh, we got we came in, we got a good deal, we actually have like housing, you know, affordable housing, and so we have extra money to pay for this and to pay for this, and then pretty soon you have you know a nice little community and it'll have its ups and downs and stuff but when you have all of your money into offices and tech and those people leave and mm-hmm. then you have to also keep in mind that the low-wage workers they weren't living in san francisco because they could not afford to live in in san francisco and all the school teachers and the mm-hmm. fire department and the police department they got priced out of san francisco by the tech bros and and i mean tech bros just to the tech people, I should say. But, you know, we know the demographics. It's mostly bros and whatnot. So um, then so then that's where the loop comes in, because more people leave, less taxes, less taxes. People feel unsafe. People leave, less taxes. And it keeps spiraling and spiraling. And so you'll see, depending on what news agency you look at, it's very interesting because there will be a lot of people that will say, despite progressive policies, the city has... So they'll say that they'll blame it on the progressiveness of San Francisco of like why there's so much homeless, why there's so much drugs, right. why there's so much crime. Despite its progressive policies, the city of San Francisco has produced less low income housing than state agencies mandate. So mm. it goes it goes into this thing of like people label San Francisco as this super liberal and and it's not really. That right. is a lie. And so people will point to the policies as the reason for San Francisco in this doom loop. And so then then they'll be like, okay, so then what happens? Because there's a bunch of crime. People don't feel safe. Um, the homelessness pop, pr- problem or, or unhoused people problem and they like the crime and drug use and all of that. So then what? Then you have to take what little resources that they have left and boost up who gets it, the police. So then it becomes tough on crime and then you have to worry about the quality of life issues and people will point to it and being like, see, you had a progressive um, district attorney who was who was, uh, you know, trying to rehabilitate the policing yeah. system and all of that. And they, they blame that. <laughs> so then, then you get people in who are like, oh, no, you need to to, to it didn't, you know, tough and we need to be cracked down. And it's, it was all these liberal policies and stuff. And it was like, no, the real reason that San Francisco is in a doom loop is because of caste. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but nobody wants nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to. It was the redlining. You got rid of all of these things to appeal to people of, you know, at the top of the caste. To make it this ideal and then to look and they and they uh, one of them even points out in the article, I think it's um, Megan Rose Dickey or even Kimberly. I think Kimberly Ray, as she points out that, you know, you think of like the former president is not liked if we think of San Francisco. You don't think of like, oh, he's he has, you know, those people would be like, no, but that's kind of. The, the thing that she points out to is that in San Francisco, they would despise that man. And yet 
everything that they've gone about to do is to make San Francisco great again. And at yeah. what cost? You know, yeah. it's like they actually yeah. have more in common with the people <clears throat> who are like make America great again and stuff. It's one of those things of judge people and judge cities and judge just anything by actions and not what they say. Exactly. Because it has a, this reputation of being hippy dippy and all that. But if you go in and look at the actions and what's really happened, it's like, yeah, they're not. No, that's some bullshit, man. And now they're in a doom loop and it's like, oh, we're going to blame the left for it and, and all of that. And it's like, nah, it's cast. Mm. Cast is the reason that you are in the position that you are in because you wanted it to be the way that you wanted it to be. But you didn't want to say the quiet part out loud. You want all of San Francisco to be Knob Hill. But you can't say that out loud. No, nah, but, but you'll do it. And not even well, know that you do it, maybe. And that's even crazy. Right, right. It, it, it's like my man Star King using George Washington to be like, he would want us to be together this, and be against this evil atrocity of slavery. You're like, but would he? <laughs> really? What do his actions say? Yeah, that kind of sounds similar to what is going on in Portland. Um, from what I know, from our friends that live there, of just like, it's, I don't know, Portlandia made us think it was just this like little hippie town, everybody's so quirky, but it's really super segregated, lots of homelessness, um, and I mean, I've never been to either place, but it sounds pretty similar. It it does, especially when I think of Portland, because you think of like, oh, they're going to be cool with everything. And then you do a little bit of reading and you're like, oh, actually, Oregon, like the state was like, yeah, everybody can come here except black people. <laughs> yeah, like they were pretty explicit in their cast. And so it, it is this like, oh, just because you, you, you know, tout around being a liberal and stuff, that doesn't mean that you're uh, you're. Um, down for the cause, I guess, for lack of a yeah, better term, right. you know, like yeah. that you don't uphold the caste and uh, Western European superiority thinking and that kind of thing. I'm a liberal as long as my daughter doesn't bring home a black dude. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I know anything about that. Hmm. Okay, so we are to nerd alerts. We let Aaron have a breathing moment. So, Aaron. Okay. Well, wait, does anybody else have nerd alerts? I certainly do not. Shockingly, no. Shockingly, no. Well, this film did come out in April of 1974, and it is a film of its time. But it's funny because it's a film of its time on accident, as when we get to Tasty Titties. Okay. I'll let you know. Or maybe before that, and if it comes up organically. Um. So the year, so again, April 1974. So in 1974... The oil crisis. Oh, um, yes. the, remember, yes. the largest number of gas stations are closed on New Year's Day in the United States. So we learned about that in Deer Hunter. Yeah. Yes. The 70s. And so that was January. So by March, OPEC ends a five-month oil embargo against the United States, Europe, mm -hmm. and Japan that caused the 1973 oil crisis. Um, in 
The terracotta army of Qin Shi Huang is discovered in China. Do you guys know about the terracotta army? Sounds like a bunch of pops. It's 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots with 520 horses, 150 cavalry horses, and they were all buried to protect as the to protect the emperor Qi Xing Huang in the afterlife. Oh. And he was the first emperor of China from 2010 to 2009 BCE. And it was discovered by farmers who were digging a well in 1974. They were those were real people? They weren't real people. They were terracotta like right, figurines, right. but they were I, super oh, detailed. Oh, like yes. every one of them is completely different. Yeah. And, and the detail. Yeah, I've seen the pictures are incredible. Yeah. It's it, yes. it's it's wild that that was this discovery. And it was so they were they were buried on purpose. I mean, okay, yes. I know that I sound stupid here. But okay, so so somebody spent the time to carve all of these terracotta the the horses and the chariots and the mm-hmm. and the million uh, lots of people yeah and then they buried them because the the intent was they are gonna protect the emperor yeah in the uh, afterlife all right they're that right. they're the they're you know they're it was the first emperor um it was like you know really long time ago but but you kind of think of like how the pyramids were built as yes and, you know they put so I think it was kind of the same train of thinking of how like okay this person's going down and then they may and it was just so many like eight thousand soldiers all of this and the the wild thing is atini i was watching it when i was i saw something when i was visiting you all in the morning and it was like you know nat geo something about that and the guy he went in and he showed and it's just the detail it's it's not like they oh they just cut and paste cut and paste no they went into detail like every soldier is pretty much different and wow. the the amount of detail that went into it and so the thing is it's they were they were buried but when you looked at it it just looked like a rolling mound like even to mm-hmm, this day mm-hmm. it just looks like this rolling mm-hmm. mound and it isn't until like that you go under and discovering that these farmers just wildly came upon this crazy and that just must have been nuts because it's nuts now if you google it and look it up you'd be like what um so then in march 1974 indictments are handed down for the watergate seven and the grand jury <laughs> it's just really loud you're clapping <laughs> It should be. Well, yeah, save your applause and, uh, until August 1974, where the grand jury names Nixon as an unindicted co-conspirator. Unindicted. So that brings us to April, when this movie comes out, that 1,200 pages of edited transcripts of the Nixon tapes are released by the White House. So the Nixon tapes, Nixon... This ties into the film because when this movie came out and all of this was coming out again, this is April. And so they're hearing about the Nixon tapes and this is a movie called the conversation. And everybody was like, Holy shit, Francis, like this is, this is, and because they were the Nixon administration, like the people who were making the tapes and recording the surveillance and stuff within the white house, they were using the same sort of technology that is on display in this film. 
And right. everybody was just exactly. like, oh my gosh, how did you do this? But it turns out, and we'll get into it more in the tasty titties, but like that was just a coincidence. Like Francis Ford Coppola just kind of got lucky because he was uh, having a, another okay. cop. Like he had finished the the first draft of the screenplay, I think in 1969. So this is before even the Watergate oh, wow. break-in and stuff. Yeah, it's just wow. a wild thing of just crazy timing. So when this film comes out in April, like the Watergate is just everywhere and everybody's talking about it. So the film gets released. So now because it, we have to see this through. So, you know, the film gets released in April. So then in May, the House Judiciary Committee starts impeachment proceedings against Nixon. And in July, the Supreme Court rules Nixon must surrender the original tape conversations. And also in July, three articles of impeachment are approved by the House Judiciary Committee, obstruction of justice, misuse of power and contempt of Congress. And the impeachment is sent to the floor of the House for a full vote. But the vote is never carried out because in August, Nixon released the transcripts showing his involvement in the cover up. And on August 8th, 1974, Richard Nixon resigns from the presidency. And in September 1974, he is pardoned by Gerald Ford for the good of the nation. These are all things that will never happen today. <laughs> I just point out the, the Judiciary Committee, the releasing right. of tapes, the Supreme Court ruling, my man yep. walking away. And the reason it will never happen today is because it happened now and the people went back and they did what are what is it called a post-mortem and they said what went wrong and they learned exactly. from their mistakes exactly <laughs> yeah. we're gonna Other get a, a schmo who is never gonna admit defeat never so the movies of 1974 number five was the trial of billy jack number four was that was good oh interesting number four was earthquake i've never heard of the Either of these two movies. I mean, it was clearly a slow year for movies. Well, wait until you hear of oh, these. Oh, maybe you heard of Young Frankenstein, number three. Oh, okay. Oh, Igor. Then you had a movie, the number two movie of 1974, Blazing Saddles. <laughs> number two movie. Yeah. Because the number one I've film of 1970. You know? Oh, we already did we it. You did have to watch it. it though. Yeah, you and Adam have to watch. That it. might be our first. Because remember, Teeny, we did say that we would go back and and redo something. Like you do have we that definitely power. Definitely have to have a Bush family. It looks racist. And blazing saddles. That has to be when we're all together. It's racist in the way that they will. They would never make that movie today. No, you couldn't make it today. But it's, it's not a comedy. Yeah, it's a Mel Brooks comedy. It's Mel Brooks, which is just, uh, you know, a potty humor. You, Mel Brooks never outgrew. No male in America ever outgrew potty, potty humor. But it's that's great. true. The amount of signs I saw on my run today about <laughs> farts. <laughs> That's a huge, that's the most famous scene in Blazing yes, Saddles. Yes, it is. Really? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. A great farting scene. I mean, if you don't fart while watching that, 
You You're ain't American. You ain't American. <laughs> the number one film of 1974 was The Towering Inferno. Which... With Paul Newman. Yeah. I mean, he phoned that one in. Yeah, that was a paycheck. That, that was, was a paycheck. He was like, this is, this is for the charity. The Oscars, Best Picture okay. nominations. The Towering Inferno. Now that's, okay. Okay. Lenny. Would Lenny Bruce? Dustin Hoffman played Lenny Bruce, the uh, famous stand-up comedian. Chinatown. Who is, who is um, in, uh, well, not, uh, his character is in Mrs. Maisel. Mm -hmm. Chinatown, just a little film. Ooh, the, mm -hmm. the nose. Okay. The Conversation. Oh, Lord. It's a film of its time. And the winner. The Godfather Part Two. So Francis yeah. Ford Coppola had two films nominated, directed two Damn. films that were nominated for Best Picture. And which I, one I won? The Godfather Part Two. Okay. Did Francis Ford Coppola do Godfather Part Three? He did. I'm sorry. We just a lot of we just. He, he, I mean, you know, rode that ride one time too long. You just yeah. Okay. Come on, you got one and two. The man was allowed to then. You three because he gave us one and two he is allowed to do you know? three and you you know you can watch it or not and so forth here's a hot take maybe if you know if john if john c john kazale maybe if he is stuck around but probably well, not because he played fredo and yeah well yeah fredo's gotta go so Yep, those are my... So that's what I'm saying, is that 1974, America has, has gone through a lot. It's I gone through a oil that, crisis. I can see why this would be the... They would yeah. Be, you know, you yeah. got Watergate. Like, there's like, wait, what's going on? What? And it's tape and the, the tapes and all of that. Also, we've just gotten mm -hmm. out of Vietnam. It's... Mm -hmm. it, it, there's all just a lot going on. It's true. Okay, well, we are to negative reheatables. I have a couple. Just a couple. I said a slow beginning and a slow middle and a slow end. <laughs> <laughs> telephone cords. I mean, walking around with a telephone cord, that used to be cumbersome and a tripping hazard. You survived. Shocking. The amount of space that technology took up. I mean, all mm. those reel to reels, yeah. and then the, and then and the, oh, they took up a lot of space. Um, wait, pantyhose. Are pantyhose still a thing? I think so. For some people. Uh, for some people, exactly. Ugh. It's silly. You don't wear arm hose. Exactly. <laughs> Um, the gay slur and joke, uh, the uh, 70s yeah. was just full of his raincoat. I mean, that is like <laughs> a what dollar fifty at the giant at the checkout. That raincoat was disgusting, pathetic, but necessary in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, those were the ones I wrote down because I kind of got bored and just. I, I didn't write anything down from that. 
or negatives. I agree with yours. Thank you. I have mimes being mimes annoying people before it was all about views and follows. I'm like, oh, there were still oh, people I out here. You, I think that's they funny. were so annoying. Get the fuck out of my face! And then if you did that, they that was that was the kiss. Oh, it's blood in the water. We got you, man. Stan is such a creep. He was taking pictures of the girls when they were. Oh, yeah. And he he. So the the women were using the the mirror of the van to reapply their lipstick, and he's taking pictures of them from inside the van. And he's he's being super creepy. And he's like, "Give me a little tongue. Ooh, give me a little tongue." He he's so creepy that even Harry is like, "Hey, cut it out." Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Harry works in security and he listens, he's a surveillance guy and he's really good at his job and he comes home and he finds a bottle of booze in his house. And I have to say, I would feel, I, even though it's booze, I'd feel tight if I came home and there was a bottle of oh, booze. Oh, I said the opposite. I was like, Ooh, I'd be so excited. I don't care how you got it in here. Thank you. Oh, but it, it it is a because it's it's a power move. It's nice, but it's an invasion of privacy. Yes, it is, and for him, it's such a blow to his ego that somebody could could get yeah. in. Yeah, but then it's also so this guy he's like super private. But if he's so private, why did he bring everyone back from the convention to his secret lair to have a party? Like these are his competitors. That one, you know, the rather rotund fellow that I mentioned earlier, um, he that ends up like double crossing him to show him the Bernie character. He he brings him back. He's like a competitor and stuff, and he brings him back to his like secret party lair. But obviously, but he's a socially awkward man, so I don't understand. Like as somebody who can dabble in the realm of social awkwardity, um, awkwardity. Yes, I would not be like, everybody, back to my place to party. But this was before Dateline 2020, um, you know, stay sexy, don't get murdered. I guess, but Harry's not watching any of those anyway. No, but Ted Bundy was, was rather moving around in these times, yes? Yeah, but Harry's a man. He's not gonna be like, oh, yeah, oh I'm gonna be a victim, you know. Um, and oh, then Harry I was would like, never be a victim. Yeah, and then I was like, well, wait, now wait a minute. So there was all of that. I'm like, man, his neighbors come in and stuff. But then I was like, well, now wait a minute. You're playing a tenor saxophone in an apartment. Yeah. I was like, now maybe you need to re like. Nobody is complaining about that because. Uh, I mean, what are the what are the codes in that? Because I know that that would not go over well here. <laughs> Let me just say, you are a drummer, but but yeah. but it's an electronic drum kit. It's I know, and it still makes noise. I don't know. We hear people doing that, playing saxophone. It depends on if they're any good or not. Yeah, and that's it's true. always during the afternoon. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I there's always do it during flute, the day. I think next door or something. I mean, there's a brass instrument down the way. Okay, all right, I see. Well, that is but, Brooklyn. I mean, isn't that yeah. kind of what you 
sign up for when you move to Brooklyn? Yeah, it's kind of, uh, and if you, you don't want to, then get the fuck out. Around? Yeah. That's true, that's true. I would but, so get into Brooklyn. But it has to be at a contained time. You, know, yeah, you can't yeah. be going at it all day and night. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You gotta you be somewhat be decent. Two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Um, But then also, so there's that, which is different than my man, no one complained when he tore the fuck out of his apartment. Yeah. You know that was loud. Well, oh. a few weeks ago, they were, I woke up and I was like, what the hell is this noise going on? Um, and it was so, it sounded like I could tell it was in the basement, which was right underneath us. And it sounded like somebody could be trying to drill or cut their way through into our apartment. Obviously I knew that wasn't what was happening, but mm. it was loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finally, after a few hours, cause I was going to have to leave to go to work. I was like, well, Tom, I got, I got to we, Tommy is afraid of thunderstorms and he yeah. was this noise. So mm-hmm. I needed to know if I needed to drug him or like what was going to happen the next day. Yeah. And so I went out there and the guy was like, oh yeah, we had to replace the beam that goes from one side of our apartment to the other that holds up the entire building. He was like, oh yeah, oh the whole one's out. It's right over there. I was like, so that's loud. You'd think there would have been like, a, hey, a heads up. Yeah. Um, this is going to be happening on Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a 24-hour notice of some sort. Wow. I'm glad they replaced it. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, we're starting out. Um, I have, so he was 42. And I'm like, my God. 42 in 74 is. God, I thought he was 44. Well, he said, like, the car said it was 44, but later he said 42. So it's oh, still yeah. ballpark. And that's, he was, like. I would have pegged him for about 63. Right? I was just like, oh, my God. But then you have to think about it. He's 42 in 1974. That's that's a lot of wars that he's gone through. And I just laughed. And I looked down at my 42-year-old veal hands over here. They were just, <laughs> you could just, oh, just nice venison over here. Just tender, tender, tender. <laughs> Man, my man should have been born in 1980. Just nice and tender. You know, if he was lucky enough not to have to go over to war in Afghanistan or whatnot. Ah, the privileged life I've led. Tender, tender, tender tender hands. Um, um, I'm sorry. They just, Harry just mentioned casually that he thinks that he killed a man when he was five years old. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did did that happen? I yes, must have missed it. He was telling a story and he, when he was five years old, he like punched, I, I I think like one of his parents' friends or somebody, it was an adult. He punched him as hard as he could as a little five-year-old. Yeah. And then a couple weeks later, the guy died and he was convinced that that was the reason that the guy died was because of his punch. Of course you would as a five-year-old. Yeah. As I still like, remember that. Oh, but did he? Was he, was he just like... I just remember, so, imagine him as just a smaller version at 42. And I was like, yes, you would have killed a man. My God. <laughs> so this was like a character development of Harry, right? Was His, it- Harry's a tragic figure from what I've read of analysis. Okay. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And so a, a lot of this extraneous stuff was explaining the Harry we have today, right? I think because it was explaining his guilt. So at five, he thought that he killed a man. So then oh, he's, so he's trying to save anybody he could be in contact. Well, with. that happened when he was five. But then a few years prior to this, when he was on a job, he records some a conversation mm -hmm. and he mm -hmm. gives it to people and mm -hmm. three people ended up dead. Right. And so that adds to his already feeling as a five year old. Right. And okay. who even knows? I think we it's easy for us to forget in 2024 about Harry and T. Can you do the math in like what is it? If he was 42 in 74, what year was he born? Because that means like he probably certain time 32. So, he was probably in Korea maybe? Well, like maybe Ukraine had to do with deal with World War 2. Mhm. Mm yeah. I mean, he yeah, if he wasn't in World War II, he definitely had to deal with people He's, who were in. Right. Lived through it. Yeah, he lived through it. He probably would have served maybe in Korea or something, or even Vietnam. So we don't even know that aspect of... Yeah, yeah. Okay. We, the things that we are for sure told about his past is at five, <clears throat> he thought that he killed a man, and he was kind of... Responsible uh, for the deaths, just due to hit the the work he does and what he handed over, those people are now dead. Right. So he's got that, and he so he's like he's definitely fits into. My man needed therapy, <laughs> definitely. Oh, so absolutely. If, if he thought he killed a guy at five, why go into surveillance where the end product might be? killing of more people well, well because that that goes into the, the whole his whole like service thing of did he go into the service right. and then he got into it See, and there so were that was just his trade answered yeah or okay, okay. like okay. he was just always he was i mean you he's definitely a guy that doesn't like to be around people so that does seem like that would be a great job for somebody to get into True. like with his temperament True. of getting to listen and he gets to piece together things and he in his mind he gets to think like oh I'm not involved in any of that <clears throat> and he's doing it um he's employed by himself so it's not like he's in the government in the, right. in the CIA kind of right. thing working for something so it was okay. just like there's a that's what goes into it is that there, there's a lot with his character and whatnot. So then the whole thing about at the end, they they point out that he's listening to them. I heard it panting. But remember when they were at the convention and it was. What was his name? Bernie. You're asking yeah. two of the wrong people. I know. I that's why I scrolled up and I looked it up. Remember, Bernie shows him that gives the demo, and the demo about Bernie is that you dial the number, and before you hit the last digit, you play a certain note in the harmonic yeah. whatever thing, and then that trips it so that then the other listening, the other telephone is now recording, is now a listening device. Right. Right. Well, yeah. then, so that that's like a lot of work. Yes. But people who are, you know, concerned about 
where's the bug being placed? That's so that's why I was confused at the end when he was like dismantling everything. Yeah. I was like, because Harrison Ford's character was at the convention, so so I was that's why he's like tearing everything up. And I'm like, but my man, they're using your phone in the thing, but then. I was I read somewhere on the internets how it's gotta be true because I was just thinking the whole time he's you know picking it up I'm like it's your telephone that's being used against you that's what the bugging device is that's how they're they're listening to you but then they was brought to my attention how okay there's this guy he was a Russian guy I believe Leon Theremin but you know the name Theremin because there's the that Theremin instrument that goes yeah so this guy he was an inventor and he created what's called the great seal bug and this is true this is a real life thing that happened it was a gift given by the soviet union to w avril harriman who was the u.s ambassador ambassador to the soviet union and he gave him this nice wooden plaque carving of the great seal of the united states of america but inside that carving was a listening device. The Trojan horn. Of course. Yes. And so then that's other people have the interpretation that the bug was the saxophone. Because the saxophone uh. was the, la- the only thing that he didn't tear up and was the last thing that he was playing. I heard the saxophone holder. The thing mm-hmm. he wore around his neck to clip to the saxophone. Yes. So, yeah, because that's that's what he did. Yeah. So the, the oh, yeah. Spies. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you. And apparently, I guess I saw it because it's at the spy museum, and we went to the spy museum, which is a great museum. And if you're in DC, it's a fun one. Mm-hmm. We've been to some that aren't. Uh, okay, I am to positive reheatables, and I have a couple. Positive reheatables well, is where we are now. And you have a few, I hear. I have a few. Have you any? I do. Oh, please go. <laughs> As you can see, my notes are extensive, but on this list, I have two positives. Um, the first one is Doberman's. Yes. Mm-hmm. Unless Doberman didn't seem to have, did he have his ears clipped? He probably did. I didn't, I don't I can't remember. Registered. He was a beautiful Doberman, though. Tommy could be part Doberman. They said that that could be part of his super mutt. Oh, And then, yes. yeah, ADT, home security systems. Man, they've been around for a long time. Oh, good catch. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't even see Yeah, when that. he was going into his apartment, he had a little ADT sticker on it. Oh, that's cute. I mean, didn't didn't stop whoever put that nice bottle of I don't even know if it was nice, but the booze. So, well, I had it, it was a total. It was a true mid seventies vibe. Mm-hmm. That was a mid seventies vibe. Paranoia lived- was was very big then. Okay, um, talking to a live person on the phone. You you dial a number and you actually talk to a person instead of having to go through all the press one for Spanish to it. Okay. (laughs) An extremely young Harrison Ford. However, had this been his um, like uh, audition tape, 
I don't know that I would have hired him. He seemed a touch awkward to me. Yeah, but it it's not really the kind of role that he would go on to have success exactly. in. Exactly. No. Exactly. But it was it, a nice he got it because Francis Ford Coppola was in with that crew um that included George Lucas. So that's kind of how okay. he was able to Yeah, because it didn't in. do his sarcasm and his silliness. But okay. When they had all the people in the car, there were a whole lot of people in the car. Mm-hmm. That's do I positive. remember when or the context? I do not, but I wrote it down. Yeah, that was when I realized that it was in California. I thought that they were in New York for some reason. But it was when they were going, leaving the convention to go party back at Harry's place. Okay, okay. All those people were in the car. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a time when Adam had finished his freshman year of football. And all of those guys had to go sell these coupon books in neighborhoods and yeah. I was the transportation. So I had a car <laughs> full oh, of Lord. rising sophomore football players in my car to the point where Brendan was stretched across, I think four football players with his feet hanging out one window and his head hanging out the other. What co- was this? The grand am the champagne color. Grand am champagne grand am. I think I had two football players in the front with me, four in the back, and Brendan stretched across. <laughs> four yes. in the back? Jeez. Yes. It was one of the best times of my life. And <laughs> and my last... Just surrounded by all those young men. <laughs> no. My, oh, because Brendan was doing some very inappropriate jokes, which her oh, were I'm hysterical. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, this is how a group of people go to work every day. Okay, so <laughs> my last positive reheatable, it was so funny at the time, was the show up of Robert Duvall. I mean, that was a lovely, lovely surprise. Hmm. Same. Mine. Dallas. I also had Robert Duvall showing up. I was thinking forever, but then it makes sense. When, then when you look at it, it was like, oh, he just came over. Like, because they were in between Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. So it was like, yeah, no problem. I already had my trailer. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I love the first scene because I love long shots. And I just like that it was just long. And you're just like, wait, what's going on? I actually did also enjoy the first scene. I will say that. I felt like I wanted to pay it. I was trying to pay attention to everything to try to figure out what's what's going to happen. Exactly. What are we going to focus on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. I love the music. I it was remember the music. It was like a piano thing, and then they also took um, David Shire also took re- the recorded piano, and then would distort it to, and it was intended to capture the isolation and paranoia of Harry. Oh, okay. So he had like this yeah. piano theme, and then they would like distort it, and um, I just, I just, I liked it. I was in. And then I really like the sound, the way that the sound was used, especially in the elevator when Harry goes to the the director and we see Harrison Ford and he's like, oh, just leave it. And and Harry was like, no, I was supposed to leave it with him. And then Harry sees um, the Cindy Williams character and the guy that she was talking to like separately at the place. And then he starts getting all 
I mean, he kind of goes Tommy at that point. Yeah. Where it's yeah. just, this is too much. What's going on? Ah. <laughs> and and the, the sound when he's in the elevator, how it just starts getting dis- distorted. And, mm-hmm. and you just start feeling uncomfortable for him because you're like, wait, what, what is going on? I don't know what's going on because this movie is... I it just it, had this weird feeling, but I think that's part of it of like just the unease and like what is going on? Um I have oh, I didn't come up with this. I read this multiple places, but confessions being one of the earliest forms of invasion of privacy and earliest forms of surveillance. And oh, this was according to man. Francis Ford Coppola. That makes sense though. Mm-hmm. Because they show the scene where he goes into confession, and and then I, when I read, it, I was like, oh yeah, because I wasn't, I'm not Catholic, I wasn't raised Catholic, but I I knew a lot of people who were Catholic, and and you see it in movies and the going to confession, and I was always like, why? What's why with this inner marriage? Yeah, I'm like, what's with this inner like? I thought that it was like it's a one to one, like my relationship to like the supreme being, or it was like. Me, the, like direct connection. I don't understand mm. this intermediary thing going on. So I was just like, oh, friends, when they said that that was kind of going into it, I was like, oh my gosh, that is true. We have been under surveillance for so long, and just how, yo, nuts that was. Yeah, and how much power the pope, the priest, then had. Okay, moving on. Yeah, and and still, and just how. You know, you don't really think about it, but then how it gets you um, massaged into how we are now. Because, I mean, if you think that anything is private, congratulations, you played yourself, as they say. Um, Convention parties. It was just a whole bunch of those guys. And it was just... Hey, and, and they had like the whole, like just everybody had the booze and uh, the ice cubes and stuff. And they were just like, let's keep the party going. That, that made me laugh. Um, the Flintstones. The Flintstones are on Tubi, which is a free app. So you can watch I the Flintstones. The, I used to watch it with my grandma. That I was start, one thing I remember doing with my grandma. Did you know that, I don't know at what point, but episode one, season one of the Flintstones doesn't have the Flintstones theme song. Oh. Yeah, because really? I watched it. I watched it on Friday night. I was like, oh, let me let me see if the Flintstones is streaming. And it's like, yeah, it's on Tubi. Also, I found out streaming on Peacock, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, those episodes. So I watched the first Alfred Hitchcock Presents. You will find a whole lot of future um, movie stars in those. Mm-hmm. People who weren't acknowledged yet. Yeah, because, I mean, we say it a lot. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. We say it a lot with, like, Perry Mason and stuff. But I have to say, like, I'm enjoying I just watched the one out in there. It was... I think 20 something minutes long and it has his intros and his outros and stuff. And it's that's on Peacock. Yeah, it's on Peacock. So Alrighty. it's, it's worth the uh, checking out. Um, and then I said, is this whole film a weird metaphor for San Francisco? A question mark worrying mm. about something else only to ruin the thing that you had going for yourself. <laughs> Mm. But but 
Francis Ford Coppola wouldn't have known that when he was making that. That's just me looking at it from 2024 and thinking about just because I, I, I've been to San Francisco once and I love the city. I know. And I mean, part of that is because of your your affinity for San Francisco and all of that. And I think I was there. It's been hmm, maybe over 10 years now. So maybe even 15 years ago and just how much it's. I guess that it is obviously changed and stuff and that again, like worrying about and that, you know, he's looking for the bug and ripping everything up. Yeah. And then, so yeah, I was just like, Oh man, damn, damn San Fran. Damn. Yeah. That it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. We are to quote a uh, teeny. Any positives? I did mine first. I remember them. Doberman so now from we're, <laughs> now we're to quotables. I wrote one down. I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of murder. That was a good Ooh. one. I Others? wrote two down. Yes. He's a nice guy for a cop. <laughs> and then I'm getting fed up. And then somebody said about what? And he said about you asking me questions all day. Yeah. I have like the most famous one from this. The whole the whole thing. He'd kill us if he got the chance. Oh, yeah. And then at the end we'll be listening to you. Oh. Well, they are. I hope they're enjoying this podcast. And then this was funny because they're going to a surveillance convention and so they're like comparing their bona fides and it's like, no, this guy's a legit deal. And like, well, why would he be a legit deal? It's like, he's the guy who told Chrysler Cadillac was getting rid of its fins. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember that. that because I remember the Cadillac fins. Mm-hmm. So those are my quotables. Okay, well... I hope there's no recasting because this film never needs to be remade. Um, uh, we are not there yet, though. We are oh, to LVPs. Wow. Okay. And my LVP is okay. My LVP is me. I just didn't get. It. I just didn't get. It. I just didn't get. It. <laughs> it's me. Hello, it's me. <laughs> yeah. My LVP is the execution. Oh, interesting. The, yeah. Well, my MVP was the idea. I thought I had potential. <laughs> I thought I could be a contender. Oh my gosh. What if I pick blow up? It would be funny if I pick blow up and you guys are like, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> now this is what I'm talking about. I have for my honorable mention as LVP, I have San Francisco. It's <laughs> mm. so sad to me. I know. But I'm Just- glad to know. I, you got to know. You got to be informed. And, and we, and if, um, if we're honest, like as a people and especially as like Californians and, and stuff, like we can save San Francisco if we're honest about what went wrong with it. But I feel like, um, living in America for ain't nobody, ain't nobody care that much. Yeah. 41 years. I'm like, nobody's going to to say that. And I didn't even get into like, cause that was always a thing. It was San Francisco was for white people and Oakland was for black people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even get into to that whole thing. And so, and the Oakland Athletics are 
probably moving to Las Vegas. And there, really? there will be like another, like, so it's just like an exodus. And the Golden State Warriors famously played in Oakland, but then their new stadium got moved to San Francisco. And so they're, oh, wow. you know, there. And so there, there's just like so much about the Bay Area that I don't even know and didn't even get into. And that was why it was my honorable mention. But my real LVP of this hairlines. We. This movie was tough for men and their hairlines. You got Gene Hackman, John Kazan, like everyone just hairlines, 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 just just running away from the issue. I'm just going to say go with the hairline God gave. I mean, if you're able to, to use it. They whatever, did. <laughs> yeah. But then the comb overs. Don't do the comb over. Get rid of the comb over. It's just wild because you think of, like, look at Brad Pitt and how old is he? Pushing 60. He's got to be close to 60. And George Clooney and those men just, I don't, whatever magic and mojo they got going on. George Clooney, look at his father. His father still has a a lovely head of hair. Nick Clooney. Yeah. Uh That's good. But there's, I'm just saying that if you look at the percentage wise of hairlines, and what um, I'm just saying that there a lot of work has gone into the uh, I don't know the what would you call it the makeup or the that like we don't really even talk about now that oh yeah that has gone in Tom Brady you know it was looking a little iffy there and now he's just full head of hair and you look at somebody in the in the 70s watch. Like their hairline, especially in the seventies, it was just that's just the way that it was. This is how people age, and at, at some point, and they don't really talk about it because it's men, so they don't talk about it. If it was women, we would know all the secrets and all the dirt, but it's men, so we they don't really talk about it. But something happened with science and technology, where you look at it and you can just see like the hairlines are a lot different now than they were in 1974. Those hairlines in 1974 would not stand in 2024 is what I'm saying. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. You are not wrong. So we are to MVP. I don't have one. Uh, like I said, mine was the idea. I thought I had potential. They failed. Mine was Walter Murch. He was the guy that he was. So what happened was he was in charge of, he was the editing, the supervisor in editing, but he was also the sound designer. And so when the film wrapped principal photography, um, versus for Coppola had another film that he was working on. Godfather yeah. part two. So, yeah. Walter Murch pretty much had free reign on this on this post-production. Oh, okay. Okay. And I thought that the sound was riveting. I actually am the outlier here. I was sucked in. I was hooked in. It got me. I was hooked on the paranoia. I wasn't sure what was real and what was fake because I didn't I was in with with uh, Harry's mind when he goes into the hotel room and he saw the the blood stain. I was just like, oh, that's just a piece of his pigment of his imagination. At the end, 
when he he goes and he sees her in the um in the car i didn't even register that he had thought i thought that the blood coming up from the toilet was all i thought that was all part of his figment of his imagination right me too. I didn't think that I didn't know if any of that was real. And then when right. he goes and he sees her, I didn't register like, oh, she's still alive. It didn't hit me until like maybe like the credits were rolling and stuff where I was like, oh, they killed him. Like it had to be it, when they showed like like Robert Duvall going there and that he heard what he wanted to hear. So kind of it, the whole movie, it's cast because he assumed that the director, Robert DePaul's character, wanted to kill his wife and he'd kill us if he had the chance and meet us at the hotel. But really the conversation was they were going to get rid of the director. And that's what happened. Like, they killed him. Oh. I had given up at that point. I got it. I had given up. Mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out. I watched this on Thursday, which was like two days earlier than usual. And um, yeah, I I just I well, good, thank you. It was see, it's made for some people. Yeah, it. I have to say, when I when I picked the movie and I hearing about the conversation, I did have the thing again where I was like, huh, this is the conversation. It wasn't what I. Th- thought it was gonna be they definitely don't make movies like this anymore exactly and i think that that's a good thing and a bad thing because i kind of liked the that it wasn't all spelled out for you that you did have to pay attention but i i think it's put us in the negative reheatable because we are now so conditioned and used to things that this move, you do kind of have to work at it. So yeah. I was able to, because I've been doing more things with sound. So I was kind of into, oh, he's playing. Oh, they got the the microphones going in all these directions. And then he syncs them up. And then he's filtering mm. it so that he'll have the whole master track of what their conversation is. And they'll get to talk about it. And so that was kind of my, like, oh, I'm kind of interested in this. And then the music and Gene Hackman. So yes, I was able I to, like, that. hang with it. I, I through your talking, think if I had seen this in 74, it would have been a whole different experience, probably. Oh, definitely. Because you would have been, you would have had a different experience that you've already forgotten for a million reasons <laughs> in 2024. <laughs> You know, you've had a past, Ma. Uh, uh, yes, I have. Okay, so did you do a recasting? You know, when I was reading about this, they mentioned the Will Smith film Enemy of the State as kind of being an updated version of this mm-hmm. and that Gene Hackman kind of plays a similar character to Harry. And I saw... We saw Enemy of the State in the theater. Um, so... I don't really remember it that well. So instead of doing a recasting, I was just trying to imagine because of how movies have changed, who is a who today is our Gene Hackman? And I couldn't mm. think of anyone. True. And I think that that's has something to do with the superhero like the Marvel universe and superhero yeah. films of how yeah. 
you know, we used to have these characters, these actors who would get to play all these different kinds of roles. And now they get locked up and signed into these Marvel deals and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they I I think just because of the business has changed because Gene Hackman wasn't um, like he wasn't hot. You know, he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't the the uh, steamy, uh, you know, co-star or yeah, as Dustin Hoffman wasn't yeah like all a lot of those guys from the 70s they Mm -hmm. they just don't have we just don't have somebody that's that's like that today we 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 have a lot of people who are really attractive and good looking and stuff but we don't really have the the every man and even i was thinking like oh william h macy but that's dating me because yes exactly you know older now so it's 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 just an interesting thing yeah the character actor type yeah, the character actor who's a character actor but is actually a lead actor. But it's he's cast lead as a lead actor. Character actor who is a lead actor. He was like right. the yeah, now Gene Hackman would be a supporting actor. I guess he would be like the oh, I forget that guy's name. But he he's kind of um a bigger a gentleman. Murder. Yeah, and he was in the um that Clint Eastwood movie about the the Atlanta bomber and he was in the TV show about he was like a murderer and he's I forget it's something Hauser like is his last name and he's like a white guy and you kind of always see him but like somebody like that but he would get in the 70s have a chance to right be right a lead actor and we we're just kind of missing that and I was just that just kind of sad for that yeah well hopefully it's cyclical and we'll get We'll cycle back, or so, we just get TikTok stars, and it's just yeah. all TikTok. <laughs> so we are to Tasties. This was Francis Ford Coppola's and Gene Hackman's favorite of their movies. Well, mm. wow, yeah, mm-hmm. that's all I have to say is wow. Well, <laughs> that tells taste. me there's more going on than I was. Okay, yeah, you're right. More, you're right. More they were putting down than I was picking up. Mm-hmm. Gene Hackman did learn to play the saxophone for this film as you learned to play the guitar for Truth and Soul. Oh, yes. Um, This film used the same type of surveillance as the Nixon administration used. Oh, interesting. So what they were, the reel-to-reels and the click-click-click, you know. Mm -hmm. But but like I said, it was a coincidence because people thought that it was tied in because when it came out but it was a coincidence because the script was done and the the idea for the film came about because he was talking to a friend about espionage and how most people think that in order to um to keep yourself your conversation safe at this time in the 70s that you would be out and about in a crowd and right. just walking around. Right. And the, the friend was like, mm, well, actually, and talked right. about these microphones. And um, he, Francis Ford Coppola had had uh, Michelangelo Ant- Antonioni's blow up in his mind. And he was like, oh, what if we take that for sound? Like, it's basically mm-hmm. that, but we do it for sound. And, and these, these people who think that they're not being able to be surveilled, and that's the thing. I like the originality of that, you know, to be able to see this and go, wait, I can do it in this way, because I I feel like there's not a lot of originality now. Um, 
This was originally, speaking of originality, envisioned as a horror film with Marlon Brando. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I know, I, I don't get it. The city of Paris department store there mm-hmm. in where the Union Square sitch is now a Neiman Marcus. And I wonder if it still is, what with retail being what it is today. That's a good question. It is. And those are my tasties. I have that it received the Palme d'Or, the Did 74 Cannes Film Festival. And that's the English translation is the Golden Palm, which is the highest prize at the festival. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Sound. And I was like, what, what beat this for Best Sound? But apparently Earthquake has oh, better sound I don't, I don't remember this. Earthquake, the movie. And it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture. And Francis Ford Coppola won both of those. No, Best Original Screenplay went to Chinatown, I believe. But Best Picture was Francis Ford Coppola. Um, Gene Hackman, this was very different. Harry was very different, a very different person to play than how Gene Hackman was in real life. In real life, Gene Hackman was, he was very outgoing. He liked casual oh. conversation. He liked casual clothes. So Harry was very, was a socially awkward loner. The raincoat, the translucent raincoat and the out of, uh, out of date eyeglasses were all, um, parts of his, you know, to code him as, um, so a socially awkward man um and at some point i guess he was given fifteen thousand dollars and in fifteen thousand dollars in 1974 was the equivalent to ninety two thousand dollars in today's money hmm. so those are my tasty titties for this well this is the conversation this is it- one time when Gone with the Bushes has divided opinions, which is lots of fun. So next week, it's on me. I have You have to make a choice. Oh, okay. no. We're still in the 70s. 70s one, are wild. One is 1971 uh, versus 1978. So one is one hour and 50 minutes, 1978. One is... Two hours, 1971. I've talked about both of these films. There's one and coming home? No. Oh, 1978. Talk about both of these films. Huh. Um, Pitini's pick. I need some more information. I don't have any more. Are they um, the same genre? Uh, one has Gene Hackman in it. No, the, <gasps> the other French one. Connection. Yes, that's oh. 1971. The French Connection. The other one came up as uh, I I believe it's a touch problematic, probably a lot problematic. But okay, Brooke Shields, Pretty Baby, Pretty Baby. Uh, uh I saw her documentary titled Pretty Baby on. Uh, what she went through through her career, my God, she she was the epitome of the perfect female face 
of white America. Um, so we are either looking at um, child prostitution or Gene <laughs> or Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. How do you as, like them apples? <laughs> neither are over two hours. And look, I guess we'll just stick with French Connection because you guys have mentioned that for a long time. And have, I don't want to be the one that picks child prostitution, <laughs> given a choice. Okay. Okay, so next week we will do 1971's French Connection, which was before this film, The Conversation. Man, it's got, I... a, it's got a great um, chase scene in it. And it is uh, New York, yes? I think so. Well, I don't know. I know that the Gene Hackman's character's name is Popeye. Popeye, yeah. Doyle. I think he's a cop, Doyle. too. Popeye Doyle. A, a cop named Popeye Doyle. Cast is going to be so much fun. Exactly. And he wears a hat, and it's, I think, drug smuggler situation. Okay. Tini has chosen. Next week, we're doing drug smugglers as opposed to child prostitution. And now you know what I support. <laughs> uh, which is the most politically acceptable. Well, this has been the conversation, which uh, we had a lot of conversation about it. Thank you, Guy Guy, for giving us, uh, Aaron, for giving us the um, the background that we needed to make a connection to it because we mm -hmm. didn't. But next week, we're going to make a French connection. Look at that. Wah, wah. <laughs> All right, listeners, that's been it. Whoa. Whoa. Bye. Bye.